Welcome to the Old Bridge Baptist Church podcast. We hope you find the following sermon to be edifying for your walk with the Lord. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also visit our website at obb.church for more info. Now here's the sermon. Good morning. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Can everyone see me? I know I'm a little shorter than most people. Good morning. Praise God. So when people look upon their lives, they usually will fixate upon specific instances that either showed victory or defeat would be imminent. But one specific action, one specific decision turned the tide that resulted in a different outcome. They are said to have had a watershed moment. We continuously look back and assess our own lives and evaluate by determining which moments turn the tide from accomplishing specific goals in our own lives. For example, in World War II, it was said that the turning point, the watershed moment in the Pacific War was the Battle of Midway. But what had turned the tide? The Navy cryptoanalysts, or the code breakers, intercepted Japanese messages that revealed an attack on AF. While AF could only have been a few locations, in order to narrow the field, they sent out false messages stating Midway was short of fresh water. In response, the Japanese fell for the ruse and sent out a communique with AF was short of fresh water. So it was official. Midway was AF. But unbeknownst to the enemy, the US Navy was armed with pertinent information, such as the place of attack, the time of attack, and the number of enemy forces. The Japanese Navy, while a mighty Navy, was caught off guard and defeated. Their hopes of using Midway as a Pacific staging ground for the invasion of Hawaii was in ruins. This truly was a watershed moment. This moment impacted scores of lives, and we're still beneficiaries of that decision. Yet it was not universal in its scope. And unlike Midway of asking the question, what is AF, there does exist a universal watershed moment that affects all of humanity. It doesn't require a list of questions and answers to narrow it down, but rather it requires us to answer one question. This brings us to our subject today, who is Jesus? This text will provide us three key components that will determine the watershed moment of all of our lives that have dire consequences. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are great and mighty and you are worthy to be praised. I come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his sovereign Holy Spirit. Would you be merciful to me, Lord, as I bring and and preach your word, and I pray that you are honored and glorified. Would you prepare our hearts to be submissive and, and humbled by your word, that we would be ready to be obedient, even to the obedience of death. Would you be merciful before us? Would you bless us with your presence? Would you be overjoyed with the victory within this text? And I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I know the text was already read, but would you please honor me and open your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to reread verses 27 to 38. There's nothing better to read God's word aloud. Amen. So brothers and sisters, now listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? 
when they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever saves his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. While on the way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, the Lord Jesus began his private discussion with his disciples, and he asked strategic questions. He began with the question asking which strangers of the majority thought of his identity. And so Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And the disciples responded with three identities. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And said, although options one or two are related, let's consider our first option, John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was a special one, but limited to one function. One purpose, that is preparing the way for someone greater. In Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, Mark had quoted three Old Testament passages. Exodus 23, verse 20, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And he wove them into a beautiful tapestry linking their fulfillment to John the Baptist. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. While being a merger of three verses, all of verse three is Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. And it carried the thrust of the meaning, hence Mark's phrase, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But similarly, in the Gospel of John, chapter one, verses 19 to 34, we observe John the Baptist's own understanding of himself, his discussion with the emissaries, emissaries sent by the Pharisees. And these emissaries asked if he was the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. But John's answers to all three inquiries was no. And so the emissaries continued with what sounded like a hint of desperation. Well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. And he responded with prophecy. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So it's clear. John's mission was to be the messenger and not the object of his message. And even though John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, 
and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So by John's own words, the distinction between he and the one coming after himself are clearly not the same person. And yet most simply, at the time of this conversation, John was dead. Moreover, Jesus was only approximately six months younger than John, and despite being dead, the thought of John having come back into an already existing person is absurd and illogical. And yet despite the absurdity, John's resurrection was growing in its popularity because of the similar calls to repentance. In Mark chapter 6, verse 14, it reads, And King Herod heard of it, that is the ministry of Jesus, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miracles, these miraculous powers, are at work in him. But why? Well, in Mark chapter 6, in the previous section, in verses 7 through 12, Jesus had sent his 12 disciples out, and they preached repentance. And so Herod's sin was before him, because John the Baptist had repeatedly challenged him and called him out for taking his brother's wife. Option two was the prophet Elijah. He was a mighty prophet, but still, why Elijah? Well, Elijah was the only prophet to have never tasted death, but instead he was taken directly to heaven, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. In addition, the prophet Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5, prophesied Elijah by name would return before the Messiah, so it was actually common for Jews to search for his return. Despite the confusion, the Lord Jesus gave an explanation to the necessary clarity of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, in Matthew 17, verse 12. He said, Elijah had already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they had wished. And so with prophecy in Jesus' words, how should we reconcile the Elijah-like dynamic? Well, very simply, Jesus said so. End of discussion. But John the Baptist was a wilderness man who dressed himself with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist while eating wilderness cuisine of savory locusts and sweet wild honey. Sounds good, doesn't it? Elijah had dressed the same way, for he too was a wilderness man. They dressed the same, both wearing leather belts and hairy clothing, which was a sign of a prophet. But as believers, we can identify with the prophecies and their misunderstanding and why they had asked if John the Baptist had returned. But the third and final option was one of the prophets. Was it a lazy answer? Maybe. Was it a safe answer? Potentially. Was it an intentional answer via their understanding of scripture? Yeah, potentially. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 through 18. But all of these options had two things in common. They affirmed Jesus was from God, and he was the Messiah's precursor. But notice Jesus' silence for their answers. What did it indicate? It indicated those answers were entirely wrong. His follow-up question was focused on his disciples' personal thoughts and personal confession because they did have a teacher-disciple relationship. So in verse 29, Jesus asked, But who do you say that I am? And the emphasis is on you. They had been with Jesus for some time now, and they have witnessed countless miracles, surpassing wisdom and authority never seen before. 
And so the question was intended to take all their time together thus far and to have them look deeper, to move from the general to the particular, to move from the joy report to a personal confession. And Peter, the group spokesperson, and the always to first to speak, declared, Thou art the Christ. And in Luke's gospel, he says, Thou art Christ, or God's Messiah. And I loved Matthew's. Thou art the Christ and the Son of the living God. But I love Jesus' response in Matthew's account. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter answered correctly. So, who is Jesus? This leads us to our first compliment. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Peter and his fellow disciples, all Jews, knew and learned of the Jewish Christ or Messiah. And in just case we're not clear, Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So these words simply mean to anoint. But here's a better question. Why would this declaration of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, be so important? And the important lies beneath the context of this title. For in the Old Testament, only three classes of people were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. It is this third class, kings, where the hope of the kingly Messiah was developed. You see, they knew and understood in part what the scriptures stated of the Messiah. They knew the promises found in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17, where Yahweh had declared to David that after his death, someone special from his lineage would sit on a throne that would endure and last forever. They have read the coronation psalms that proclaimed the everlasting king. They have read verses like Psalm 110.1, where the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Beautiful, isn't it? Despite these insights, the Jews never had a fully developed and cohesive understanding of the Messiah. The disciples only had small glimpses, pictures, and shadows of what the Messiah would do. This is the imagery and position that Peter and the disciples most likely had. We can imagine the excitement surging through the disciples after Peter's confession, can't we? Each one conjuring images of Jesus placing the Romans under his feet. No more servitude. No more taxation. Yahweh once again blessing his covenant people. You can imagine the joy of being on the front line, on the ground level, and watching historic events unfold before your very eyes. But Jesus was more than the Messiah, wasn't he? He is the Son of the living God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Holy and Blessed Trinity who had condescended himself. He had left his throne in heaven and took on flesh, the greatest condescension ever. And in Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul stated, He, that is speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And in just in case anyone considered that image of Christ bored to be superficial, just listen to Paul, what he continued in Colossians 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Praise God, right? But yet, in John's Gospel, Jesus and the Father are one. Amen? Jesus and the Father are one. Amen? Amen. 
okay, we'll get there. He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Back to oneness. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus stated, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Another in this verse is in the Greek word allos, which means another of the same kind. So since the Father and Christ are one, who sent the Son? Well, that's the Father. The Son was going to ask the Father, and what's the consequence? The Father will send another, equal to both the Father and the Son. Do you see the equality of all three? Last, Jesus had creative powers that God alone has. And we would consider the miracle prior to this conversation in the feeding of the multitude. But with the revelation of Jesus' messiahship and divine power, how did Jesus respond to Peter's answer? Did he instruct Peter and the disciples to tell all of Israel their long-awaited messiah was here? Did he instruct them to prepare for guerrilla warfare? Did he instruct them to prepare for intelligence gathering and then war? No. Instead, in verse 30, Jesus stated, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Do nothing and remain silent? This response should signify something. I liked how one scholar noted it. He said, Jesus' injunction of silence arose out of his knowledge of the disciples' defective view of messiahship. Yet a continuing and defective view of messiahship or Christ still exists today, doesn't it? Much like the assortment of answers given by the crowd, many purport to know Christ today. Their personal confessions reveal a whole host of answers that range from Jesus to be just a good man, to a, just a good teacher, or even worse, a lunatic. And all views by their definition in today's age where everything is true, no one's a liar, makes all their views valid. And yet, it doesn't matter if Christ was the God-man or not. But however, much like the distinction between the crowd and the disciples, the closer you get to Christ, no other answer will suffice other than Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. That was an amen. Let's try that again. <laughs> no matter how clo the closer you get to Christ, no other answer will suffice other than Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Amen. That's twice now. Okay, so. But consequently, if we espouse differently, it only affirms contrary to what people believe. It affirms how distant you are from Christ. Thus far, in Mark's Gospel, prior to Peter's confession, Mark, <clears throat> Peter's confession in Mark chapter 1, we observed the coronation of Christ via his baptism. We observed his defeat of the king of this world, Satan, in the wilderness. We heard the triumphant king declare that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. With the enemy king defeated, King Jesus began to undo all that the previous kingdom had ushered in. Jesus was healing, casting out demons, and demonstrating the power over, the, over sin, that is, the effects of sin and even the authority to forgive sins. He even chose an unlikely invasion force, 12 fishermen. They too, by the authority of the king, were able to do such things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
With all of these victories and the newly revealed identity, and despite being told to be silent, disciples were still ready to go until. Let's look at verses 31 to 32 with me, shall we? <clears throat> and he began, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Pretty stunning. But according to the disciples, this is precisely the antithesis of what the Messiah was supposed to do. With Peter's rebuke of Christ, the collective misunderstanding of Jesus' Messiahship has become manifest, hasn't it? Because quite frankly, how can the Messiah set up a kingdom if he's dead? And for the first time in his ministry, Jesus revealed the purpose of his first coming, to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. This leads us to our second compliment. Who is Jesus? Jesus is his mission, the cross. On this side of the cross, we can truly imagine and identify with the disciples' immediate change of emotion, can't we? It took a split second to affirm Christ as the Messiah and then to watch it taper off to hear about his impending death. Also, the shock was only compounded with the reality that it was their own countrymen that was going to be the Messiah's executioners. Talk about mind-blowing. Yet while Mark provided us a list of elders, chief priests, and scribes, they all comprised what's called the Sanhedrin. These religiously trained, learned men within Judaism and centered at the very heart where the Messiah was to rule, where to be as executioners was hard to hear, and that's an understatement. It is one thing to say your king would die in battle at the hand of your enemy, but at the hand of the very people who were trained to look for your coming is absolutely shocking. Their messianic theology was completely upended. There was no way of arguing against it for what Jesus spoke very plainly, that his words could not, could not have been misconstrued. And so Jesus now begins to teach his disciples what Messiahship really meant. And yet Peter, with the often power of putting his foot in his mouth, he decided that he was going to do something entirely different. So he understood Jesus' words, and he decided to pull him aside for the express purpose of stopping Jesus. Oh, Peter... The audacity of Peter to question Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, and declare him, you must not die. You could feel the air just vacate the room. This rebuke was not simply a miscommunication on Peter's part. Absolutely not. No, Peter rebuked with the same tone and sharpness that Jesus used to rebuke demons. So in turn, Jesus did what? He turned to face the other disciples, and he publicly rebuked Peter. And as Peter spoke for the disciples, his response may have also been their position as well. And so Jesus responded to the crowd, that is the disciples, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. What an epic failure. Peter was unaware that he was attempting to thwart the divine will of God. His statement resembled Jesus' temptation in the wilderness whereby Satan bombarded Christ with the incentives to abandon his mission of the cross. Like usual, Peter spoke impulsively. 
He lacked understanding. His spiritual vision was very blurry. However, Peter's answer illustrated the common view of the Messiah. And by God's providence, we learned about Isaiah 53 last week. And that's precisely the text that's commonly neglected by the Jews. But by God's grace, the prophet Isaiah spoke very plainly that the Messiah would suffer and die. But to a Jew, they didn't know how to handle a dead Messiah, and quite frankly, how would it profit them? But listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The very elders, the chief priests, and the scribes that were experts in the law neglected this view. A suffering Messiah, Messiah was a difficult proposition to digest. For all the Jews could think about was the restoration of the Israeli kingdom. We learned from uh, a few weeks ago when we, uh, the, the pastor preached on Acts, they were asking, when's the kingdom going to come in? Their mind was absolutely fixated on it. But however, they never considered before the kingdom could be installed, their sin debt had to be atoned. For quite frankly, what good is an everlasting kingdom when sin is still in the midst of it? Amen. Since the first Passover until Jesus' day, the Jews understood the life was in the blood. Listen to Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So they understood the necessity of substitutionary atonement, whereby they took a prescribed animal that met all the Lord's requirements and they sacrificed it, <clears throat> sacrificed it knowing that's what they deserved for their sins. They deserved death. But in turn, they understood that the animal was a substitute and the blood would cover their sins. But even after the first sacrifice, as soon as the second sacrifice was offered, it should have been abundantly clear their offerings could not eternally remove their sin. The shadow in the picture of each atonement pointed to the time where, like in Genesis 22, verse 8, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. The shadow had become substance in the cross. The type has found its antitype. Finally, sin had been atoned. The cross is an offensive symbol, isn't it? Before Christ, it was a symbol of torture, execution, and certain death. Yet the cross was necessary. The cross was planned by God. For God the Father planned it, God the Son accomplished it, and God the Holy Spirit applies it. But just like Peter, many today attempt to redefine the necessity of the cross, they do so by downplaying their own sinfulness. And whether we like it or not, the cross says something significant about us. If we downplay the cross in any way, the severity of it, the seriousness of it, it reveals a low view of God. It reveals a low view of scripture. It reveals a wrong and dangerous high view of ourselves. Yet that high view of ourselves is smashed to smithereens, as they say, by God's legal declaration of all people who ever lived and will ever live guilty. The Lord has stated in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 10, 
There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And finally, the payment, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. There's no dream team to get you out of this one. There's no lawyer. There's no wisdom. There's nothing. There's just guilt. And what you denied in life, you will say in death, Jesus is Lord. The cross, as grotesque as it was, is now the symbol of hope. Jesus was God's chosen, God's prescribed sacrifice for the remission of sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' mission did what all animal sacrifices could never do, and what all animal sacrifices pointed to, provide eternal life. Therefore, Denying the necessity of Christ's divine mission only affirms your distance from Christ and the severity of the wrath to come. Conversely, if you draw close to this glorious and sobering reality, then by confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. It is that message that Peter, in ignorance, was attempting to stop. Any Christian presentation that downplays our sin, cheapens the cross, and reclassifies the necessity of the cross, it cannot save. It is weak. The closer you draw to Christ's identity and to his mission, our depraved nature cannot be denied. We are guilty. After Jesus, rebu after Jesus rebuked Peter, he summoned the crowd to join the conversation. And as if the difficult news of Christ's impending death wasn't enough, Jesus gave more hard-hitting truths in verses 34 through 38. While the crowd does not know of the impending death of Jesus because they were told not to tell, Jesus revealed that following, following him had conditions. King Jesus issued three imperatives or commands, deny, take up, and follow. And the explanation that follows was through a series of paradoxes, save, lose, lose, save, or gain, forfeit. This leads us to our third and final compliment. So first, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son, the living God. Jesus is his mission, the cross. And finally, Jesus is the king and sovereign over discipleship. These commands are very difficult to hear. They were contrary to the sinful nature. For some, for, uh, for some, they simply are illogical. Our natures are depraved and fallen. And if we repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ for the atonement of sins, his atonement atoned for our entire being. In other words, since Christ's death atoned for the whole depraved nature, our whole new life is now his to command. And praise to him. Amen. But therefore, the commands of deny, take up, and follow no longer appear detrimental, do they? But instead, joyous actions out of the attitudes rooted in the gratitudes flowing from our heart because of God's wonderful grace. They are, in fact, freeing. For they now are realizing the freedom found in the cross of Jesus Christ. For we have been born again. We have a new nature. But would you believe some Christians oppose this high level of obedience? 
However, this level of obedience is not foreign to scriptures. This is not something new. For within the Levitical law, the totality of the Jewish life was governed with the expectation of complete submission. For example, clothing, food, sacrifices, interactions with believers, interactions with those outside of the covenant, business, etc., were all governed. Yahweh was king over every aspect of their life. And it demonstrated something. It demonstrated the severity of the fall and the extent of the fall. Moreover, it also demonstrated the sovereignty of God throughout every facet of life itself. We have no bargaining chip. We can offer nothing to God. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart, apart from the works of the law. The only thing deserved is judgment, and rightfully so. Hence the sweetness of God's grace. Hence the reality of the good news. These commands force the person desiring to follow him, that is Jesus, to count the cost of discipleship. Denying this wisdom and running headlong without knowing the implications will demonstrate their lack of understanding of their sinful nature, the realities of the cross, and their guilt before God. So, what's in a question? Everything. For how you answer the question of who is Jesus is the universal watershed for all of humanity. That includes you and I. Define Jesus wrongly and the cross will have no effect. Call him a man and he died for himself. And we are still dead in our sins and we are to be pitied. A cheapened sacrifice will make our total submission absurd and something to be pitied. It's embarrassing. So who is Jesus? Please answer correctly for anything that differs than what scripture had recorded will result in the most dire of consequences, eternal damnation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we take these truths to heart. We are under your sovereignty. You are our king. And no matter what we say, we deny you in life, we will affirm you in death. And you will cast us out into utter darkness. The tragedy of having all the information before us, the tragedy of the gospel, especially on this side of the cross, people still reject it because they've created a Jesus in their own image. They've created a false gospel, a gospel that cannot save. And that is to be pitied. Lord, I pray that as a body, as a beloved bride, would you please empower us and strengthen us to be bold in the proclamation of your kingship, your lordship, and that the power of gospel is victorious. For you have conquered on the cross. For you have said, you have said it, it is finished. Lord, if this is new to us, and people have not received you as Lord and Savior, bring them to the end of themselves. Let them see the glorious grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. But if we have been saved and we have forgotten, renew us. Create a boldness in us, Lord, that we would go out proclaiming the glories of the gospel. Be bold and zealous for King. There's nothing that's greater than King Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. I pray you would honor and glorify it. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old Bridge Baptist Church. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening on. 
We appreciate your support and we hope you have a God-blessed day.